Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Kick out the jams, motherfuckers. This is Wayne Kramer from the MC5, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Hey, everyone. This is Shelley, the Rock and Roll Librarian, to tell you about an attractive offer from Adam and Eve. Many of us are homebound, anxious, and bored at this time, and could use some toys to spice up our lives. AdamandEve.com is there for you and your intimate partner. Go to their website, select almost any one item, for 50% off and receive 10 free gifts plus free shipping with the code ROCKLIB. That's R-O-C-K-L-I-B at adamandeve.com. Have fun. Is there a library, a bookstore around here where I get books on rock and roll? Rock and roll. This is a story that needs to be told. These rock and rollers want something to read. Shh. Quiet, please. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Rock and Roll Librarian. Uh, with me, Christian Swain, the rock and roll archaeologist here, is the one, the only, the world heavyweight champion, Actually, you're, hey, who you're much more heavy. You're much more a lightweight, I guess. No, the well, world lightweight champion. I think yeah, I'm a mi- middleweight. You mean yeah. a maybe bantam, maybe bantamweight. <laughs> the world bantamweight champion <laughs> of rock and roll librarians, Shelley Sorensen. Hey, how you doing? Should I punch somebody now? Yeah, well, you should. You know, how, how about some smack? Can you do some WWE smack? No, or... I, I'm sorry. You can't do that. That's why I'm a lightweight. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah okay all right yeah we don't want you to get too far out of your comfort zone yeah all right so uh, this is kind of a bit of a continuation for something that we started with another pantheon podcast host yep. uh let it rolls nate wilcox uh shelly and i were on uh nate's show here to talk about um well, Shelly, tell us what we talked about. Oh, we talked about this book I have here in front of me. Which called... we're going to dive into much deeper today. That's right. right. Yeah. It's called No One Here Gets Out Alive, which I always want to say no one gets out of here alive. So I have a problem with the title already. Oh, anyway. Po- you don't like the poetic license of No One Here no Gets one Out here Alive? No One Here Gets Out Alive. It flows much better. It's the biography of Jim Morrison. Yes. Of The Doors. As told by his young plucky assistant 
Danny Sugarman. Yes, and uh, Rolling Stone writer Jerry Hopkins. Yeah, who brought the credibility and the um, uh, typing chops. He's a typist. <laughs> no, I don't think he'd appreciate that, but yeah. I know, uh, but you know what I mean. So, yeah. you know, him and Danny together. Dan, Danny's uh, firsthand experiences of uh, working from the doors from a very young age uh, and seeing all of the uh, rock and roll mayhem uh, and disturbances uh, and just plain wackadoodle craziness that occurred uh, with Mr. Morrison in his uh, short 27 years on this planet, huh? Yeah, and when you say young... I don't know if people know that, that, Danny, that he, yeah, he, he was, was like 12. 12. Oh, he was 12? He was 12 when he started working for them opening fan mail. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. I wish I could have got that job. Uh, yeah. I don't think that would have been a safe job for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway. Well, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's a certainly an interestingly written book. I would say. Yeah. Uh, and we will dive into it. But let's uh, let's give everybody a flavor of uh, Mr. Morrison and, of course, uh, you know, uh, the band The Doors, uh, that consisting of Robbie Krieger on guitar, John Densmore on drums, and the man who needs no introduction, the backbone of uh, the, the act, uh, Ray Manzarek. Yes. That's how you say his name, by the way. Manzarek. Manzarek, yeah. Okay. Yeah, or Manzarek, I guess some people, but I always, I, I was always taught it was Manzarek. Yeah, Manzarek. I'd like to hear him say it, though. Well, that's not going to happen because he's dead. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I'm sure I could find something on YouTube if you really yeah. want to, you know, well, what, what is but it? But that, to me, that's always the test, is how do you say how, your yeah, name? Yeah, of course, because you know? that, that's the, that is the definitive. Thing. Right, right. So let's get into it yeah. uh, and start with a song. Uh, this one's pretty well known. It may not be their most famous, and we'll get to some of those in a bit. But it definitely uh, puts them on the map from the first album. Uh, let us hear a little of Backdoor Man by The Doors. If rock and roll is, uh, in its essence, supposed to be primal and emotional, um, I think uh, you're getting that from the opening notes with that song. Yeah, and the lyrics, too, kind of. I mean, yeah. wasn't there some talk about what the lyrics mean exactly? I mean, in blues, you know, that would mean a backdoor man. Tell me about it. The guy who comes to the back door when the husband is gone. Yes. You know, that is the actual But then there's blues another meaning. like sexual kind of um, possibility uh, too. Yeah. Anal sex. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that uh, too is, uh, you know, part of the charm <laughs> of, the, of that song. <laughs> oh, I got to back away from the microphone. Okay. Charming. Charming. Charming, yeah, says uh, the librarian. <laughs> right. So, but yeah, yeah, you can interpret it uh, uh, either way. But yes, uh, originally, you know, an old blues tune uh, being that uh, it is uh, that uh, when the when the husband's away, the player comes in the back door. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. All right. So, so let's start at the beginning. Yeah. I think a lot of people probably know that Jim was born into a, a military family. His yeah. father was Rear a Admiral. career naval officer, and his mother was the perfect military wife. Um, and they moved around a lot, of course, because that's what uh, military brats, you know, that's oh, their yeah. life. Yep. He had a younger brother and sister. He had an early show of resentment toward authority. I think his character was pretty... Well defined pretty, before yeah, he ever got to the door. Evident from the right. beginning, you know, yeah. that he had some issues that maybe these days we might have sent uh, him to family therapy about, but that's not what happened. <laughs> and when I read about how he treated his younger brother and, and you know, that he was like at one point loving and, um, and fun and, and then on the other end of the spectrum, kind of a torturer and uh, teaser and played pranks on his brother and kind of, you know, terrified him. I suppose that's what a lot of older brothers do, but... Um, sounds, you know, sounds a little bipolar to me. Yeah, and, and I think that's a theme that goes through this book. It's like, yes, he was a, you know, we'll get into that more, but he was, you know, a risk taker and, a, you know, loved danger and he took a lot of drugs and he was an alcoholic, but on the other hand, he could be kind and gentle and loving and generous and all that so well he could also uh you know with a bottle of jack uh walk uh, half naked uh down hollywood boulevard uh yelling the n-word so yeah what uh, a a lovely (laughs) picture yeah Yeah. and he you know continued that way throughout school he was a big tease he he subjected his friends and girlfriends to sometimes bitter and cruel jokes and stunts but he was still popular people gravitated towards him and he was very smart and very well read. He read a lot of poetry, and um, I think that's also well known that he was extremely intelligent. Mm. Um, and he also liked what they called in that day race records and you know blues and spirituals and you know beatniks. Jack Kerouac's um, On oh, the Road yeah, was one of his favorite yeah. books. Quite a touchstone for yeah. And he lived in uh, the Bay Area for the San Francisco Bay Area for a little while um, when his family moved here. Uh, and, probably Alameda. Huh? Yeah. And came into the city and frequented City Lights Bookshop and, you know, loved all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then he attended junior college in Florida for a little while when his, his family lived there. And um, w- one thing that I thought interesting about his classes that he took in college, he took a class on collective behavior, which was included the psychology of crowds, which later helped him in his performing. So he was in talking to classmates at that time. He said, I can look at a crowd. We can cure it. We can make love to it. We can make it riot. So as early as, you know, age 18, he was already thinking about that kind of thing. Um, You know, how to control people in an audience, basically. And then the kind of big deal started when he got into film school at UCLA in 1964. Yeah, yeah. that's where he meets Ray. Yes, he meets Ray there. Um, Ray is also a film student. And it was during what they call now call the Golden Age. So there were top directors. You know, this is Los Angeles. This is like 
Hollywood nearby, and they have uh, one of the students was Francis Ford Coppola, for example. Yeah, experimentalism was just starting to come to to Hollywood. Uh, you know, the French and the Italians have been doing it for uh, a decade before that. But I know Jim especially was interested in in the experimental type of filmmaking. And to your point, um, some of these uh, auteurs that you know have become household names, like Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, obviously um, from UC USC and several others that were in that clique, mm-hmm. you know, all were, were coming of age uh, at the same time. Yeah, though apparently he was even more experimental than other people, you know, in his class and that were around that time because mm-hmm. for his, uh, I guess, his final or his project, you mm-hmm. know, to yeah, yeah, um, yeah. finish, mm-hmm. he had a film, a film that was questioning the film process itself, a film about a film, a montage of abstract and loosely connected events. And he was given a complimentary D. (laughs) Apparently it wasn't really appreciated by the teachers. And he was hurt by the rejection and almost didn't graduate. He left school right before graduation, but was talked back into graduating by a teacher you know, who said, no, you come on. You're just, this close. Finish mm-hmm. it up. Yeah, right. you got two more weeks. Let's right. go. But he mm-hmm. never he never went back to get his diploma. Yeah. And yeah, when he met Ray, Ray yeah, was... In fact, it was the last known actual address uh, Jim ever had was uh, there on the dorms uh, of UCLA. Oh, in Westwood. In Westwood, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he meets, he meets Ray at that time. And Ray was in a band already called Rick and the Ravens in Santa Monica, and his band had been hired to back up Sonny and Cher at a high school graduation dance, mm. which I thought was very funny. <laughs> yeah. um, and one of the members quit suddenly, and in the contract it said that they had to have six people on stage. So Jim's first time on stage, I guess, he said, Jim, you got to be in our band. Be there at 6.30. We just need a body. Yeah. And he said, but I don't play anything, Ray. And Ray said, that's okay. All you have to do is stand there and hold an electric guitar. We won't even plug it in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us wish we could do our debut. And that's like how that. you get paid in Hollywood, that's guys. Right. Uh, fake but it till you make it, right? That wasn't like really the beginning of, of their musical career together. They no. came apart. Famously uh, hooked up again one day uh, inadvertently in the beaches of uh, Venice. Venice, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, which was where Jim moved to after after he got out of school and did, I think, you know, a lot of couch surfing. But he began to write when he was in Venice. He created, in a burst of enlightenment, more material in less time than he ever would again. Mm-hmm. And Jim says, those first five or six songs I wrote, I was just taking notes about a fantastic rock concert that was going on inside my head. I love that idea. You know, when you hear how people write songs, um, you know, everybody has a different story about how they access the muse, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess he just like had this fantasy life inside his head. And so that was in 1965. And he wrote the words to Hello, I Love You about a girl he saw on the beach, and also Soul Kitchen, dedicated to a small soul food restaurant near the Venice Arcade, which they were inspired by ordinary events, but had interesting twists, like common themes and visions of death and insanity. 
<laughs> and so let's listen to ho- Hello, pop, I Love You. Such because pop I, fodder. Yeah, I don't remember uh, that one having yeah. visions of death and insanity in it. But, uh, you know, Hello, I Love I You. I believe is, Funeral Pyre is... Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, Our love song. will become a funeral pyre. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, you know, it's it sounds like a cute song. And you're like, oh, he just sees this girly lo- that's cute on the beach. And then he's in love with her. And I remember being in elementary school and thinking, like, that was a really, really funny line. Hello, I love you. Won't you tell me your name? I just thought that was hysterical. And, uh, you know, and that, that's part of the dichotomy of The Doors is, uh, you know, sometimes the music is uh, seems light and airy. And uh, and then, you know, lyrically, you dive in and go, oh, oh that's what they're uh, talking yeah, about. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's play a little of Hello. Comma, I love you. Hello, I love you. Won't you tell me your name? Hello, I love you. Let me jump in your game. Hello, I love you. Won't you tell me your name? Hello, I love you. Let me jump in your game. He's walking down the catch there's uh, no bass uh, guitar on that track it's uh, strictly uh, ray uh, in his left hand um doing uh, doing the bass lines i mean that just like blows me away i don't understand how you can have a band without a bass but you know mm. they did they did they, well, <laughs> well and, some and, of the songs they yeah. guess oh, songs. yes yeah. they uh, quite a few of them have actual bass players uh, right. session guys you know, you know most famously Carol Kay uh, and others uh, Jerry Chef Jerry Chef yeah was another one that uh, did a lot of stuff for them um, so but uh, yeah I mean the thought was uh, well we don't need to an, add another uh, person because Ray could handle uh, the bass with his left hand. So, yeah, he had yeah. a special organ. Um, uh, well, I'm sure people use them all the time now, but Columbia, I think, provided time, him with yeah. a, a, a an instrument at the time that was possibly newish that had really good bass on it. So he just like, okay, I'll yeah. just do that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it did. It created a, a little bit of a unique sonic palette uh, for the Doors. And, you know, between that and uh, Densmore's jazz uh, influences and his drumming and Krieger's flamenco-style guitar yeah. uh, that would show up every once in a while, um, these guys are way better than a lot of people give them credit for. There's 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 a lot of snobbery when it comes to the Doors, yeah. of which I don't understand. Well, um, I think a lot of people just equate the Doors with Jim Morrison, yeah, um, yeah, and don't listen to what's going on behind it. Well, I think Jim is deserving as well uh, for what he was able to convey. I mean, uh, to me, he's really the first real dark character in rock and roll and unlike others that come afterwards like alice cooper or uh, uh you know marilyn manson and everybody in between um you know this was really authentic i i, I think this was really his psychology coming out as opposed oh, yeah. to a character yeah so but um but yeah cool song to to kind of uh, show uh, the beginnings of the doors there 
Yeah. And speaking of Ray and him playing the bass with his left hand, um, they hooked up again on the beach of Venice. And so when during that encounter, Jim told Ray that he'd been writing songs and he started singing an acapella uh, version of the first verse from Moonlight Drive. Yeah. And Ray said, yeah. those are the greatest fucking song lyrics I've ever heard. Let's start a rock and roll band and make a million dollars. And Jim said, that's what I had in mind all along. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure what uh, what you just read out of the book is uh, word for word in the uh, Oliver Stone movie of uh, made from the book. Ray yeah. and uh, Jim's uh, meeting there on the sands of Venice. Yeah, I remember seeing that movie and just coming away and pretty much utter disgust but um, oh really yeah i mean because the author of i think it's jerry hopkins at the end of the book uh, says you know that after the book came out uh, a lot of people wanted to make a movie and oliver stone got the rights and that his depiction of morrison was mainly only as the alcoholic yeah, the... extremist yeah, you the, know, the drunk uh, schlub and yeah, all of that. And didn't yeah. infuse it with any any of the balancing kind of human aspects of Jim. So, yeah. I mean, that made sense to me then. That's that's why I've had this impression of Jim Morris in all these years. As you know. a boob. I mean, I don't have much better impression of him now, but, you know, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, that's a disclaimer. I, I've never been a Doors fan, but... Um, yeah, I've been a huge Doors fan. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they were they were pretty uh, central to to my upbringing uh, when it comes to music. So, yeah. all right, let's play a little bit of uh, Moonlight Drive. guitar part on that is really cool i like that and i what i read was when robbie krieger joined the band he played bottleneck guitar as in addition to flamenco and all the different styles that he learned and jim was so enamored of his bottleneck that he wanted him to play it on all of the songs <laughs> but of course he didn't but, well, thank, you know he's like yeah do that one thankfully, again thankfully, yeah do that but, again but anyway yeah. I, I really like that well and let's, let's... interestingly i just want to add one more thing that this was this song was on the first uh set of demos they ever recorded before even robbie yeah. and jim uh i mean and john uh were in the band they oh. recorded this with ray's brothers and uh, as a demo and it didn't go anywhere oh but oh. yeah i thought that was interesting well let's uh let's also you know talk about the lyrics on there which you know impressed uh ray so much you know let's swim to the moon uh-huh let's climb through the tide penetrate the evening that the city sleeps to hide let's swim out tonight love it's our turn to try parked beside the ocean on our moonlight drive that's pretty fucking good. I didn't. I don't think I ever like, um, really heard the lyrics when I heard that song. 
Well, now you have. Yes, thank you. And what We're do you think? We're going to do a poetry reading. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because I know how much you like poetry with music behind it. <laughs> yes, right. You know, I was named after a poet, and I still am not really big into poetry, so... Yes, you were, weren't yes, you? Yeah, I yeah. Was. Uh, I believe the author of Frankenstein's husband. That's right. <laughs> Mary Shelley's husband. That's right. Is actually the poet you were named for. It is true. Yeah. I am. Mr. Shelley. Mr. Percy. <laughs> Percy, Percy Shelley. Bish. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's get back to this. Yes. Okay. So um, at, the, at this time, he started doing everything he could think of to alter his consciousness. And open the doors of perception. Oh, I know what's coming now. Coming. Break on through to the other side. Uh, take the highway to the end of the night. Visit weird scenes inside the gold mine and ride the snake. He uh, started gobbling acid. Uh -huh. And he wrote to his family to tell them he was in a group and singing. And his father was stunned and wrote a letter of strong objection. And Jim never wrote his parents again. Yeah, so that probably a, wasn't a good idea, uh, Admiral. Yeah, I mean, right. you know, give him a little bit of support mm, there. Yes. But yes, so he's doing all these things to kind of expand his consciousness. And they finally get a house band gig at a small club on the Sunset Strip, less than 50 yards from the Whiskey A Go Go. Yep. And the first night, no one showed up. So that was a good place for them to get used to performing, even though when... Because yeah, Jim, Jim was not a natural performer. No, and, and he apparently had a weak voice to start with. He just needed his confidence, and he would, you know, present his back to the audience. He was very shy. Mm. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. Um, uh, speaking from experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It takes a little bit to yeah, uh, get out to. there and open yourself up to the audience, huh? Yeah, it really does. Yeah, I wouldn't know but anything it, about that. It, once you do it, it seems kind of natural. Yeah. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Um, they were near the Whiskey-A-Go-Go, and they used to go down during breaks in their act and go to the Whiskey-A-Go-Go and watch the headliners, and they had great aspirations to be as big as the band Love. Oh, yeah. Which was very popular in yeah. those days. Right. Um, Arthur Lee, right. And they expanded their repertoire um, just as they were being fired at the other club called the London Fog. They were asked to fill in at the whiskey for um, somebody that didn't show up or something. And the woman who was the booker at the whiskey really liked them and asked them to come back for a couple of months. They were fired at least once a week. <laughs> Which I liked. Um, and Jim, you know, was already bringing drugs on stage. He was already getting really drunk. He was already, like, not showing up because he was too drunk to, um, you know, to perform. Um, but by this time, they started playing the song The End. At first, a very nicely written song about faded love, which became eventually something quite different, as we know, that in kind of performance art fashion you know he started embellishing on the song and it became one of the most provocative and shocking songs that they ever did yeah it's still one of the most shocking songs right ever ever uh put to vinyl right um famously used in uh apocalypse now and others uh, have employed that. Uh, I believe it is like an eight-minute song, uh, if I remember right. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It's an almost 12-minute song. Um, and we can't play the whole thing, but 
obviously we should probably play the uh, most shocking part of it. What do you think? I think that's a good idea. Let's prepare the audience. It's based on the Oedipal myth. Yes. Of, yeah. Uh, please. As, please. Yes. 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 Go ahead. Uh, yes, explain. Oh, is that it? Oh, it's just, yeah, that's so, all you want to do? Yeah. Yeah. If people, yeah. I think a lot of people know what happens, uh, that, uh, but maybe they don't. But you'll well, find let's out. See. Now. Well, yeah. I don't know if we can play the whole thing. We can tell them about it afterwards, though. Okay. Okay. So here is uh, the important part of um, the end. He went into the room where his sister lived, and then he paid a visit to his brother, and then he. He walked on down the hallway And he came to a door And he looked inside Father, yes son, I want to kill you Mother, I want to Wow. Yeah, he had a he had a complicated relationship with his mother and father, I yeah. guess. I remember Especially the first father. I remember the first time I heard that song and I've probably heard it a bunch of times before I sussed out the lyrics here and was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure what to do with that information now. Um, so it was, uh, it was. I mean, think about that. This is 1967. That's amazing that uh, they could get away with this. Now, of course, it really wasn't a radio cut. It was way too long for that right. uh, at that time. But uh, once FM got a hold of it, oh, yeah, they played the whole thing. And, uh, you know, he, he hid the uh, the, word, the offending word, yeah. yes, uh, yeah, well, uh, I, pretty well. Yeah, huh? I just listened to it and I was like, ah! yeah. you know, yeah. you're like, oh, I, I guess he's saying that. I mean, but uh, obviously he was. And, um Interestingly, at the Whiskey A Go Go, he often, you know, like I said, he couldn't show up for a set because he was too drunk, and Ray would sing the songs instead. And on the night that he only made the second set, that's when he stretched this song to include those words. Mm. I don't think the other band members knew what he was going to do. You know, they were just like, oh, what's happening now? This is totally out of our control, and we just need to keep on playing. You know, this was the song that propelled him into pop mythology. Uh huh. Yeah, and That's, they, yeah, I the way to do it. Here. <laughs> they were banned um, from performing at the whiskey after that. Oh, again, uh, highlighted in the Oliver Stone movie of uh, them performing this, and then uh, you know, yeah, getting thrown out uh, by some beefy club owner looking dude uh, mm -hmm. because of that but uh, at the same time you know the uh, cats from Electra were in the audience and uh, so they immediately right. snapped them up yeah I was going to say and luckily <laughs> they were banned from performing at the whiskey but they got a record contract Yeah, and um, the producer was Paul, Paul Rothschild, Rothschild. Yeah. and produced their first album, which was called The Doors. Mm -hmm. And they were able to get a similar sound to yeah. that of playing at the Whiskey. Yeah, the so, name taken directly from uh, Aldous Huxley. 
Adores the of doors. Perception. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they got their first gig in New York City at that time. Uh, the writers say all the top groupies came. Mm. And somebody did a lot of promotion for them, you know, to try to like spread the word. Like the booking person at the whiskey um, got a 14 year old girl, for example, to call her girlfriends and ask them to call the whiskey to ask when the doors would be back, you know, just to hype them up and mm. kind of make them more. Desirable. Desirable. I was going to say wantable. Okay, that's not a word. Um, So I think they did this similar thing in New York City. You know, it's like, oh, this lead singer is like really hot. And, you know, you all the girls should come and see this band. So their first single with Electra on the first album was Break On Through. And they had to edit the uh, She Get High to... What is it on the record? She get, she get. They don't actually ever say hi. Yeah, he kind of says he in the same way that he kind of hides fuck. Yeah, he hides hi. Uh, but I, I didn't, I didn't know that was an issue on the record. I know it's an issue when they perform on Ed Sullivan. Right. Yeah. Of which he uh, was told not to. He agreed not to. And, and then he pulled an Elvis Costello. Yeah. He well, he just looked right in the camera and just went for it. No hiding. (laughs) hiding. uh, But yeah, Break On Through. That's a great song. So going to have to play a little of that. Yeah, let's play. I like that one, too. You know the day destroys the night. Night divides the day. Try to run. Try to hide. Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side Break on through to the other side, yeah We chased our pleasures here Dug our treasures there So, it's a little garagey, you know, yeah. uh, sounding. Um, but in, in, you know, it's got those, you know, the vocal where where it's it's overdriven a little bit, and it's uh, it's it's probably pegging the needles just just a little bit to give it this really raggedy, rough quality uh, to it. And uh, and then there's you know great work by Densmore, great work by Krieger. Um, obviously, uh, Manzarek is, uh, awesome. It's just, you know, I can see why, even though there's probably a better song on that album to be, a, a, a single, which ended up being a giant hit. Um, I can see why they picked that one to be the first single, uh, off the album. Yes. The Doors wanted to make Light My Fire a, sing- a yeah, single. Yeah, that's, that's to me, the long. obvious choice. Uh, uh, well, they did end up doing a right. radio cut. They had to uh, take for, a bit yeah, out of it. Yeah, so. yeah. But, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's the obvious choice is uh, Light My Fire, which does become a massive uh, hit, uh, an overnight sensation, uh, if you will. Uh, first, and, and penned, uh, you know, famously by Robert Robbie Krieger, and the first song he ever wrote. Imagine oh, that. Wow. Imagine that's your first song you ever wrote. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. Very yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I think we need to play a little of that. What yes, do you, what let's do you think? Play it. Okay. Sure. All right. Here's Light My Fire. Light 
that it would be untrue You know that I would be a liar If I was to say to you Girl, we couldn't get much higher Come on, baby, light my fire Come on, baby, light my fire Try to set the night on fire Oh, that's where the funeral pyre line is. And I'm sure there are a million podcast listeners out there right now going, Yes, we've been saying that for 15 minutes. Yes, I got it. I got it. Yes, yes. It was like my fire with the funeral pyre. Obviously, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yes, because it rhymes. <laughs> right, right, right. right. <laughs> you know, anyway, great stuff. I mean, and just a, that's a totally opposite song than you get with uh, uh, Break On Through, huh? Yeah, it's it's kind of... Yeah, It's like, uh, yeah, very... Yeah, but beautiful yeah. Wo- woven lines um, uh, by uh, by the band in there. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, it just says hit all over it. Yep. Yeah, and on this... Um, well, I, the funny thing is, my um, my husband was, lived in San Francisco. He was eighteen in '67, and he said he knew instantly when he heard it on the radio that it w- it would be a hit. But he and none of his friends liked the Doors. So the they do talk in this book about the um, rift kind oh, of between, between San Francisco the, and L.A. The San Francisco oh, L.A. Yeah, yeah. kind of well, sensibility yeah. and aesthetic. Yeah, we um, we talked a lot about that. Yeah. Uh, in the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast that. Uh, uh, you know, L.A. is uh, far more professionalized, uh, and rightfully so. Uh, you know, that's where you went to if you had the goods. Uh, whereas San Francisco was a homegrown, organic uh, sort of music scene. Yeah. Uh, for, for, for good and bad. Um, you know, obviously there's uh, some interesting things that came out of San Francisco, but really... You know, the music business is based in L.A., uh, and I'd pick the Doors, uh, the Birds, and Buffalo Springfield over uh, the airplane um, Quicksilver Messenger and certainly the Dead in 1967. Uh, and again, I probably have a bunch of podcasts or listeners going, what? You're so dumb! Well, well good. You know, cards and letters are, are, are more than welcome. <laughs> um, yeah, there definitely was a rift between uh, the two uh, cultural centers of the uh, the Golden State, huh? Yeah. On this, the first album, this is where Jim kind of set in stone his image that he lived with. Mean the Lizard King? Long after, and even to this day, because they didn't like the bios and liner notes on most albums. So he created a multi-page manifesto for the album that included some of his most imaginative catchphrases as the authors say, defining and limiting the Jim Morris image long afterwards. I thought it was interesting that they used the word limiting because I think that he did feel limited after the first couple albums. It's like, oh, I have to continue this mythical and legendary image 
you know, that people expect of me. And that was one of the things he struggled with. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, and he's not the only one. Yeah. Uh, this is a, a common problem with uh, with the music industry is, you know, they, they put you in a box, they categorize you, they right. uh, genretize you, and then they stick you in a bin uh, in a record store, and that's where you're expected to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it doesn't invite uh, experimentalism uh, and even evolution. Right. Uh, right, growth. Uh, yeah, which is which is sad. I, I, obviously, that we've gotten away from some of that today, uh, and uh, but you know certainly at this time, these cats were uh, rebelling against you know the the organization man and the corporatist structure and things like that. But uh, you know, Jim, in many ways, he could have just done it. And instead, he just kind of railed against it mm-hmm. uh, and continued with the, the process uh, almost all the way up to the end. I mean, you know, the escape to Paris was specifically to try to get away from uh, sure. this, uh, this character that uh, had taken over uh, his existence. Yeah. Like you said, he railed against that. He railed against this image. But, I mean, he'd been railing against things, you know, his parents and the establishment, you know, really all his life. And in fact, in this fact sheet for this album, he said that his parents were dead, which they yeah. weren't. Yeah. And yeah. so he was kind of like engaging in the, especially with the Oedipal uh, lyrics of the end, you know, it's like the epitome of the generation gap that he was really diving headfirst into, or maybe... That was just his life, and the generation gap kind of affixed to him because he lived it. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, it's the hippie era. There's, um, you know, a complete and utter uh, rejection of the normal American lifestyle. Yeah, and this is all being invented. Uh, you know, there's, mm-hmm. you know, people are just making it up for good or bad, and uh, you know, uh, in, in some things just didn't work out very mm-hmm. well. Uh, so yeah. So we're coming on to their second album, which is called Strange Days. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting, um, speaking of, you know, bucking trends, was the, the song Horse Latitudes, which was basically music and sound sound effects put to his a poem that he had written in high school. So this is, a, you know, seems a lot like performance art to me. All of the members of the Doors played musical instruments to back this song in unusual ways, plucking the strings of a piano, for instance, Mm -hmm. and used a lot of strange sound effects against the background while he shouted out the lines of his poem. Well, as Jim, you know, always thought of himself poet first. As a poet, Uh, yeah. I'm not sure how successful um, he was or even would have been if he took that on as a vocation. But uh, as a lyricist, uh, you know, for pop music, um, you know, I think he did pretty good. So, all right, let's listen to a bit of this uh, with... Just a bit. uh, Just Just a bit bit in the mouth. A bit. Horse latitudes. (laughs) When the still sea conspires in armor and her sullen and aborted currents breed tiny monsters, true sailing is dead. (laughs) 
awkward instant, and the first animal is jettisoned. Legs furiously pumping their stiff green gallop. That is not my cup of tea. I find it quite obnoxious. Well, I'm um, not. I'm just like that's not me. I, I just I, I don't find it aesthetically pleasing in any way. I don't think it's supposed to be aesthetically. Okay, I don't pleasing. want to be disturbed. Like I that. think it is meant to be disturbing. <laughs> um, now, now, look, I, I will say, and I'll read the lyrics here, very because they're brief. Um, but I mean, if this is what he's writing in high school, it's not too bad. Uh, when the still sea conspires in armor and her sullen and aborted currents breed tiny monsters true sailing is dead awkward instant and the first animal is jettisoned legs furiously pumping their stiff green gallop and heads bob up poise delicate pause consent in mute nostril agony carefully refined and seal over so for a high school poem i couldn't have done that you Roses are red, oh. violets are blue. So you're not impressed? No, no, I am. I'm. I'm impressed. I just, I actually don't really like it, but that's okay. Well, I mean, maybe, no, maybe it's it, you don't, for do you not like it because poem. it's disturbing? Yeah, I'm. I'm not really a poetry person. Uh, yeah. yeah, it just it did kind of remind me of a. It, it, granted, it it's over the top. It certainly from this perspective, um, uh, and at the time, it uh, you know it. I don't know. It just, just sounds like a Charlton Heston monologue uh, in some <laughs> sword and sandal right. pick. Uh, but uh, no, the imagery is very. I mean, yeah. it's pretty intense. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. With it's, the horses pumping their legs under the sea, and you know. yeah, especially if you know the point is to try to get a rise out of people and and to shock and and surprise them. Mm-hmm. Um, this showing up, uh, you know, in the middle of the album, uh, kind of makes you pause and go. Uh, well, WTF, right? Yeah, you make you At pause and that. go, oh, it's time to get up and get my beer. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> bathroom okay. Break, bathroom moving break. on, yeah. moving on. Now, one that I like a little better is People Are Strange, which yeah. is also on this um, yeah. album. And, you know, it just shows that uh, he has a, a wide range. You know, you don't think of Jim Morrison as being kind of socially anxious, but that's what the song is about. Mm-hmm. And it's probably more about when you're on drugs, you know, that people seem kind of menacing because we've been there. I've been there mm-hmm. when I've taken certain drugs, you know, that the world seems kind of, you know, evil. But, you know, it's I think it's really interesting that he that he wrote something like this because most of his songs are not about insecurity. Even though we pretty much established that he was uh, rather insecure uh, with himself, probably uh, bipolar. Uh, as time goes on, um, depression also is, oh, yeah. uh, is a factor. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Uh, let's listen to Jim's looking at himself and those around him. People are strange. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone Women seem wicked when you're unwanted Streets are uneven when you're down When you're strange Faces come out of the rain When you're strange No one remembers your name 
When you're strange, when you're strange, when you're strange, people are strange, when you're a stranger. As the authors say um, in this section of the book, this was an amazing array of worlds for 1967, mm-hmm. when everyone else seemed to be singing about incense and peppermints and marmalade skies. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of range, like I said, emotional and lyrical range on the on this record. Yeah, and again, you know, to comment uh, on that uh, the rivalry between L.A. and San Francisco, you know, the Doors are not uh, looking to be, uh, you know, pop. Uh, sensations, uh, you know, like the Association or uh, some of those other uh, concocted bands uh, for, to sell pop hits. They are trying to dig deep here, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, this song uh, you know, fits in with that. I think uh, you can also make the case that uh, when you're strange is uh, you know when you are uh, on hallucinogens, right? Yeah, so yeah. There, there there are some layers going That's on. That's what I my meant point, when so. I said, you know, certain drugs make, yeah. can make you see the world as Differently. being yeah. Um, yeah. kind of menacing. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the media loved him at this time. Uh, he gave great interviews and quotes, and the writers liked writing about him. He was... He made them enjoy it. Oh, that and, right. you know, let's face it, he's in a package that, uh, you know, is the second coming of Alexander the Great or yeah. something like yeah. that. Yeah, he had his know. hair cut yeah. exactly like that. Yeah. And he loved the photographers, too, and he loved trying on costumes and posing and, like, that was really fun and interesting. And they, they knew that and they liked, you know, it was always interesting to um, interview him and photograph him. Yeah. And he was using also his crowd, uh, collective behavior things he learned in his uh, junior college class. He was, you know, really milking the audience, having long silences and and waiting and waiting and letting the um, letting the kind of tension build and then coming back with a with a you know big bang and something really unusual he says just when they're about to crack i let them go mm. so mm-hmm. he's really consciously working on his his stage act and his effect on on the crowds yeah what was that class he took uh, social psychology yeah yeah Crowd, there you go <laughs> collective yeah yeah and um so back at the back at the ranch and his his natal family his brother his younger brother had been listening to the song light my fire for weeks before he knew that it was his brother singing it <laughs> His, really? Yeah, a friend had to show him the album, mm-hmm. and like he had heard it on the radio, and then a friend had the album, and he saw his brother's picture on the album cover. Um, and his father, of course, we know, thought that, you know, he's a totally straight-laced character and thought that this was just horrible thing that his son was doing. Um, his mother contacted him and said, you know, come home. We want to see you. And don't forget to get your hair cut first. You, you know how your father feels about this. And, and Jim said to the person that took the phone call, like, don't ever put a call through from my mother again. Right. Like, this is just totally like a different world than he's living right now. He can't. It's like this that I'm not your little baby boy. Um, and they came, his mother and brother came to see him at one of his shows, and he purposely sang the end 
to shock his mother. <laughs> That's right. And yes, then, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yes. then she wanted to try it's to see him. It's been a long time him. since I read that book. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. She wanted to try to see him and she kept, you know, like trying to get through to him. And he was telling everybody around him to keep her away from him. And mm. so she came out like to a different city to see him play. And he just evaded her the whole time. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. Like yeah. a knife to the heart for a mother. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. People don't treat your mothers that way. No. Well, well yeah. Depends on what's going on. But sure, I get it. Yes. I don't think, you know, what I read about his childhood, it's not like he no, was abused I, or no. anything. No, but, uh, you know, let's face it, uh, you know, uh, he was a wild child. And, um, you know, being born to what eventually becomes a rear admiral. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, those are two very different worlds yeah they were not suited to yeah. be uh they were not a good fit as parents and no. child no. no yeah no. and now remember this is uh 1967 still yeah and we're having you know anti-war movements it's a, yeah it's the beginnings of and, the anti-war yeah. movement yeah and the and vietnam the, is not going well the lines were drawn between us and them yeah so uh he started writing more political songs the probably most well-known of this era is The Unknown Soldier, mm -hmm. which um, took its name from a revered nat national monument mm -hmm. and was worked out on the road in much the same way the Doors had created their earlier songs in concert at the Whiskey at Go-Go. So a, over a period of two or three months, it developed into one of the band's most successful theater pieces. Yeah, it is definitely a theater piece. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. then you know it it includes in the in the stage show of him acting out being shot by a firing squad. Yeah. Um. So uh, let's take a listen to that. Yeah, and just let me say it's not it's not it's not specifically about Vietnam. No. It's just uh you know the 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 soldier's curse, if mm -hmm. you will, in general. Um, and it uh, just happens that, uh, you know, there is this uh, raging war going on that uh, uh, the youth of America are uh, just not into uh, and are being conscripted into. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, as we know now, uh, it wasn't going good uh, and was and it was about to get worse <laughs> here. So uh, I, I think it's a great timely song uh, uh, to uh, to to make a point and a general point that does work in the context of its times, but also outside of it as well. Mm -hmm. So let's hear uh, the unknown soldier. Wait until the war is over And we're both a little older The unknown soldier Breakfast where the news is read Television children fed Unborn heard some bass on that <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah so they're bringing they're bringing in uh the bass Somebody, player yeah now. yeah so I, I like what the authors say about this when it starts like a dirge and becomes suddenly a celebration so yeah it's you know it starts out real like serious and and ponderous and uh kind of picks up 
there. Uh, yeah, uh, and uh, as we as we said, you know, it's uh, it works uh, in its moment, uh, and it works outside of its moment uh, as well. Um, I do love the uh, interplay between uh, what Krieger and and Manzarek are doing there, um, uh, uh, interweaving uh, their uh, melody lines with mm-hmm. each other. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I like that too. I like to have music to my poetry. Oh, yes. So around this time, he's uh, becoming uh, a mythic drunk. Let's just say he moved. He moved from psychedelics more before he had been more of a binge drinker and now um he's becoming an everyday drinker um in fact he and janice joplin got drunk together at a party and it ended in a brawl with her chasing him out of the house that they were partying in and get him getting into a taxi and her like breaking bottles against the taxi but they were friends this is the way friends drunk behave. Friends. Yeah. Yeah. Bad, um, bad drunk friends. Yeah. And he, he was living in a, a $10 a room uh, room in the Alta Cienega Motel, which was, he had a, his whole life kind of in a one very narrow geographic area when he yeah, wasn't West on Hollywood, tour. Right. Yeah. And he, yeah. and he spent all his money. All he wasn't yeah. spending his money on houses and cars and no. racehorses. He was just spending his money on bar tabs and, yeah. and fancy clothes and um, just, you know, shacking out in this motel room. And then part of the time with his soulmate girlfriend, Pamela, mm. who not he, our Pamela, no, Pamela Corson, yeah, not Pamela our Pamela. Corson. No, yeah. um, though, I don't know. Maybe she, uh, did she meet Jim Morrison? Yes, she did. Oh, okay. Because yeah. he had many, many, you know, of course, yeah. girlfriends and, you know, some serious girlfriends. But Pamela was always she was the, one the one that he yeah. returned to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so he would stay with her for, you know, some of the time. Um, everything was there. The doors, offices, Electra, um, the club scene, the bars, the restaurants. And so he, that was all in a nice tight package. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, then let's see. Then Jim's, Jim's about ready to get into some serious trouble is what you're telling me. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, yeah. Trouble with so, the law. Right here in River City. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, he, he, he was getting bored, actually, by rock stardom. You know, it's funny. You know, it's only two albums in. Now they're working on their third album, of which Unknown Soldier is part. Yeah, and for the um, sun. Yeah. he wanted to. He decided he wanted to return to his poetry and publish his poetry without reference to his rock and roll image. So every time he tried to publish poetry, he wanted it published under James Douglas Morrison instead of Jim Morrison. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was still doing that. So he began to start to feel some contempt for his fans. He he got kind of sick of the sensationalism and the sex idol hype and um, realized that the whole concept of explorative music and, you know, theater and poetry was becoming lost on his audience. And he just wanted to see what kind of control he did actually have over his fans. So he decided to try to provoke a riot in Chicago in 68. And he got what he wanted. You know, that was kind of like a both a positive and negative thing for him because he realized like, you know, like he could control them. They would do what he kind of 
urge them on to do. But on the other hand, that's not what he really meant to do. So I think he was pretty ambivalent during this time. And he's also getting self-destructive with his drinking. He was drinking so much his voice was starting to decline. And he actually tried to quit the doors. And Ray talked him into giving it a few more months, which, of course, turned well, I th- I into think a few were, more years. Yeah, they were sick of Paul Rothschild's uh, as well. Uh, he, Is that right? Yeah, yeah. he was, uh, you know, kind of an exacting taskmaster uh, type of producer, uh, especially with them. And, and they probably needed that, <laughs> to yeah, be honest right. with you. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, after uh, a few years and uh, three albums, I think they were kind of like going, uh, can we just do this ourselves? And, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and also, uh, I didn't mention this, but they were there were some people uh, making a documentary of them, um, which turned into a, a movie called, I think, Feast of Friends was called. Yeah. And yeah. While... I've seen I've seen pieces of it. I know Jim, Jim and his uh, his uh, Mustang were are featured in it. Uh, uh-huh. yeah. 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 These guys that were doing there were three guys um, that were doing the filming and they became good friends because they were there all the time and they drank together and had adventures. But when he was watching some of the footage, he saw part of a New York concert which bordered on a riot, and he saw the police heaving teenagers bodily back into the audience, and he realized that he hadn't actually had any control over the situation like he thought. He was just a puppet of a lot of forces I only vaguely understood, he said. Mm. So whereas in the one point he felt like, oh, I caused a riot and I meant to... I have all this control. He realized that there were other forces at work and he had actually less control that he was being kind of egged on to be this person that would do that. And he didn't want other people to have control over him. So he decided to do something to kind of end it. And um, well, before consciously or subconsciously, I think consciously Uh that he decided when they went to Miami, Miami, (laughs) uh, well, before they went to Miami, he saw this avant garde theater group called Living Theater. And in this performance, the actors kind of um, went to the very legal limit of nudity. Yeah. And a lot of people were doing that. Yeah. And he decided that was very interesting. So he decided in Miami, he didn't tell the other members of the band that he was going to do this. He started taunting the audience, calling them idiots, uh, telling people to come up and give him some love. And and um, the band was trying to carry on at that time. And this is when and all when you didn't have internal security, you had. The local cops as security. The the cops were there, (laughs) right. And, of course, they saw everything. You know, there's a lot of controversy about what actually happened. But he did intend to go to the legal limit. Mm -hmm. But he's very Well, the legal limit is not pulling your schlong out. No. And what he was actually didn't usually wear underwear but on this night he was wearing boxer shorts oh and his under, plan, under those leather pants this according to the authors his plan was to take his pants off though i don't you know boxer shorts i don't know somehow i can't see him in boxer shorts so you know they seem so like <laughs> tame um uh his handler you know jumped on ray tried to get you know jim to stop he looked like he was going to take his dick out and and then his handler came on and tried to get him from pulling open his pants and 
apparently, he either did show his penis or he didn't. I'm sorry, I said the word penis. Every, everybody in the band swears yeah. he did not. Right. But they got people to say... I mean, the the concert ended fine. There was it, there was no like riot, and there was no. I mean, a bunch of people jumped on the stage, but then the police, you know, cleared it out, and it was fine. But in the meantime, there was a young man who agreed to serve as a complainant against Jim for lewd and lascivious behavior. Yes, and such was the climate at that time. I guess especially in Florida, where the orange juice queen was. Uh, what was her name again? Uh, Anita uh, Bryant. Anita Bryant. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think she was part of this, but no. you know that was the that kind was, of that was uh, she. Uh, Jim wasn't gay, so you yeah. know that wasn't oh, uh, taking yeah, up true. that wasn't taking up her wasn't time. A gay, in, it wasn't in a gay efforts. penis. No, she it was, was a hetero. Penis. Oh yeah, yeah. She was she was strictly focused on gay penises. Mm, that's yeah. right. Yeah, probably gay assholes as well. Yeah, uh, not that gays are assholes, but right. the, an asshole that is gay. Right, uh, is my point. And she, <laughs> you know, really spent a lot of her time and effort focused on those two anatomy. Yeah, parts. yeah, yeah. Really important work. Yeah, uh, wouldn't you agree? Yes, totally. <laughs> Ugh, I thought she was disgustingly gross yeah, that, at that that's, time, that's and a, I still do. That's our one minute of the onion. Okay. So. so this man, young man, claimed that Jim did, quote, lewdly and lasciviously expose his penis, placed his hands upon his penis, and shook it, and further the said defendant did simulate the acts of masturbation upon himself, I don't know, oh, and oral copulation upon another Unquote. Okay. All the next day, this was smeared on the front pages all over the country, and in less than three weeks, what was happening in Miami was endangering the future of the group. And mm -hmm. now the group was banned yeah. nearly everywhere. Yeah. About twenty-five booked gigs were canceled, yep. and radio stations in several cities began removing the doors, whether it was from true their or not. Playlists. Right. Right. Yep, that's so reactionary. The, right. Yep. For the first time in the Doors' career, the media turned against them. Oh, man. Ah. Yeah. And that Miami trial was drawn out uh, over one or two years. It seemed like forever, I think, to them. Yeah. And um, when they did get booked, they had to put down a monetary guarantee. Bond, yeah. Ironically, around this time, even though it was recorded before that incident, oh, there's a Touch song Me. to this. Oh, yeah. Touch really? Me that was song? released around That's this amazing. time, <laughs> which is a traditional love song written by Robbie. Yeah, and yeah. another million-selling yeah. single. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but even though it did that well and it sold so many records, the profits were mostly spent on lawyers, the legal costs. Yeah, right, right. All right. So, Touch well, Me, baby. Okay. <laughs> Come on, come on, come on, now touch me, babe Can't you see that I am not afraid What was that promise that you made Why won't you tell me what she said What was that promise that you made Now I'm gonna love you Well, probably the most highly produced single of their career um you know with the strings and uh, all of that just um a, a lovely song when you get right down to it i like it yeah i uh i, I remember the day uh jim morrison uh died and the reason i do 
is because wait he died oh sorry oh am i getting ahead of the yeah, story spoiler alert okay uh, no, I'm just and uh <laughs> i was in texas i was at my uncle's uh, uh horse ranch and one of my other uncles was in playing pool and uh, i walked in and he is, he just played this song over and over and over again and i'm like uh what's going on why are we playing this song over and over again he goes well, because the singer, Jim Morrison, died today. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh. And uh, I might have even said, oh, how old was he? And he said 27. And I remember thinking, wow, that's really old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. Anyway, enough of me. Yeah. Well, um, Jim met uh, one of the authors of this book uh, sometime after that incident, and um, Jerry Hopkins, who was a Rolling Stone Stone magazine. And uh, Jim kind of totally changed his image uh, around this time. You mean he got fat? (laughs) No, I meant his his personality image, but yeah, I guess he got a little plump. Um, You know, I'm sure he was coached, like, it's time for you to straighten up and fly right because this is really hurting the band and it's costing us a lot of money. So well, I think he, was, he also wanted to quit. He yeah. was like, I don't really give a shit about this. I want to be a poet. Right. Yeah, yeah he did. And um, But, you know, he had extensive interviews with Jerry Hopkins and uh, eager to please and, you know, honest, serious and... You know, J- Jerry, the Rolling Stone printed one of his poems, so he was really happy about that. Um, and so that was the kind of the beginning of their relationship. Um, and then they started recording or almost completed the fourth album at this time, which was called The Soft Parade. Yeah. And um, and it was a kind of a frustrating um, kind of road for this album. And Jim only contributed about half of the material. So there weren't as many, um, you know, that there wasn't as much uh, amazing it lyrical wasn't content. It, it, you're trying to say it wasn't Yeah, I great. guess. <laughs> they, they, they said they, they added um, additional strings, horns um, by the local j- studio jazz musicians, which further blurred the once lucid Doors sound. Yeah. yeah. So um, uh, the one that I like from this album is called Easy Ride. Um, it's kind of a bluesy. Jim hoped this would be the single. And um, the lyrics are sharp and accessible, but but there's a poetic twist in the last stanza. So I don't know if we should... I guess we're going to have to play the last stanza. Yeah, he, are, he always uh, puts in some, you know... Like, yeah. it's a normal song. Oh, it's but a pretty love song. And then oh, flips wait. it. All right. We have a weird thing going on yep. here. Yeah, yeah, All right, so let's play a little of uh, the Soft Parade. No, excuse me. Easy Ride. Easy Ride. Right, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then um, we'll talk about it on the other side.
kind of kind of like a hoedown, huh? Yeah, <laughs> it does. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like a, uh, it's, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, like a little country. Yeah, 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 yeah a little country. Yeah, yeah, yeah a little pop. A little uh, country, a uh, little bit rock and roll. Yeehaw! <laughs> yep, yep, right. yep. Easy yeah. ride. Yep. So uh, there was another incident shortly after where um, he goes to, he decides to go to Phoenix to see the Rolling Stones and takes some buddies with him. And he and his buddy Tom got very drunk even before getting on the plane and they were just fooling around and messing around, throwing things at each other. And then his friend grabbed one of the stewardesses and by the time they landed, the FBI and the police were there saying that they were charged, saying that they were being drunk and disorderly and interfering with the flight of an aircraft. So they had to spend the night in jail and they had this another trial that Jim had to show up for. And unfortunately, the stewardess uh, mistakenly identified Jim as the one who grabbed her instead of Tom. So his friend Tom was acquitted and Jim had to wow. stand trial for groping the, you know, the stewardess. But the funny thing is like after they went to Phoenix for a pretrial meeting and met up with, um, with all these people, the stewardesses and the pilot at the hotel bar and they all got drunk together and the stewardess decided to uh, pull her uh, accusation and, reverse her right, right. testimony so he got out of that one but you know as an additional uh, drain on money resources and on on their reputation and on them gigging and and making music so that jim he couldn't keep out of trouble mm, well when you're a drunk and bored yeah. uh that is a, a bad concoction yeah now their their new material um, that that they were recording and writing would uh, was actually on the upswing. This was uh, when they recorded the album Morrison Hotel, and they um, the authors say lyrically this would be Jim's best work in years, and the other members provided strong support. So um, Peace Frog, I know we played this on let it roll but it's yeah, actually it's one really of my like favorite. it That's yeah one, it's like one of my favorite yeah and this was a time. tune yeah. that the band loves so much mm -hmm. that they recorded it even when there weren't lyrics mm -hmm. but then a poem was discovered in one of jim's notebooks called abortion stories i have no idea why and they used nearly all of it for the lyrics so the coincidence was that the lines from that poem fit the music created by the others very closely. So it was kind of serendipitous. Um, but he also added these two lines, which apparently were inspired from when he was a child, how he witnessed a car accident Indians on the road. Scattered on yeah, highway and bleeding. he actually saw the Ghosts Indians dying the on the side of the road. fragile eggshell mine. That's yes. right. No, oh, I know that one by heart. Oh, do you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, apparently that, he characterizes that as the worst thing that ever happened to him something like that well let's hear it yeah peace frog they're in the streets it's a 
love that Roggy, Robbie Krieger opening. Uh, that's a nasty guitar uh, right there. Very cool. Um, yeah, I like it too. Uh, yeah, and but it, it's like weird. Though. Yeah, it changes in, in halfway through the song. He then goes into his little uh, rimba poetry moment where uh, he, you know, gives it's that. Like well, a, let's a let's, different let's, song. It's yeah, a different song. Well, well, let's bring let's bring that back up here real okay. quick for the for the folks at home to to listen to uh, to that. Indians scattered on dawn's highway, bleeding. Ghosts crowned the young child's fragile eggshell mind. What do you think? Uh, yeah, it just it seemed it's like a different, like they should have made a different song with that. <laughs> like, why don't you do something else with that? It's Get a, it out of my song. I like that bridge. song until you did this. It's the bridge. Oh, it brings it down. It's really, a musical yeah. bridge though. She came. I love that. Yeah. All right. Well, he was, Jim was having a lot of stressors in his life, even though that album did very well. It was certified gold, and they were the first American hard rock band to achieve five gold albums in a row. Mm. He still had these trials upcoming. Also, one of his girlfriends was pregnant. Uh, he had 20 paternity suits pending. <laughs> Money pressures were big, and he continued drinking through all of it. So he started t talking at this time about going to Paris, um, saying that he'd like to go there as soon as the Miami court case was settled. And so in August 1970, he went to Miami to stand trial, finally. Um, his lawyer had this great idea of arguing about community standards for, you know, like we have community standards in the pornography laws, for example, and saying that, you know, the community standards are changing. And this isn't really that bizarre what he did, because that's what's kids, you know, like the social mores are changing, but the yeah. courts wouldn't let him bring that into it. So basically, they had a lot of witnesses on one side saying that he did not expose himself and he said they had a lot of witnesses on the other side saying that they saw something um well that something he did is expose not herself this himself. thing uh right. you know i mean to me presumed innocence right so right. therefore unless you know there's incontrovertible evidence like a that photograph says hey that is a circumcised penis yeah. Or maybe uncircumcised. Circumcised. I don't know. <laughs> but you get my point. I do. Point. <laughs> okay. Enough of that. Uh, so what happened was he was found innocent of lewd behavior and public drunkenness, but guilty on the charge of profanity, which was a misdemeanor. Oh, fuck no. Yeah. Fuck yes. The yeah. jury was hung on the charge of exposure, but eventually found him guilty of the, that misdemeanor. So he was guilty of two misdemeanors. And he later, he said of this time, I think I was just fed up with the image that had been created around me. I just put an end to it in one glorious evening. The basic message was realize that you're not really here to listen to a bunch of songs by some good musicians. You're here for something else why not admit it and do something about it? So he was sentenced to basically like eight community eight service. months right. of no of county jail and what yes but you know he never got to that point oh you mean, yeah he you never mean, had to serve that's oh. yeah 
and then some probationary time. Eight months? Uh, 60 days of hard labor for exposure, for profanity, and 60 six days months for profanity. saying fuck? Yeah. And for exposure, he was sent to six months. So, oh, my God. Yeah, so that's like eight months, if, I, if my math is correct. That's what you get for, maybe, maybe he should have not picked the South. Yeah, to, he to do that, yeah, he should have done that, that in San so. Francisco. Right, yeah. right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, there he would have got a slap on the wrist. Yeah, uh, which is what, if anything, he should have gotten. So, all right, moving and along. We're moving along, and yeah, we're going to hit the before uh, the end of uh, his life. One last one album, one more album, a great one with him, a "L.A. Great Woman." One. Yeah, yeah, a couple of amazing songs on that. And model. much of the material had been written long before, so it came together very quickly. Mm. "L.A. Woman." which we're going to listen to some of, was his despairing salute to Los Angeles, a city he now saw as diseased and alienated. And in this song, as you know, are the words, Mr. Mojo, rising, keep on rising. He was. Let's see, what do we call that? It's and that's an, an, anagram, an anagram from Jim Morrison. Jim Morrison. Right, yeah, right. which I had no idea. Really? Mr. Mojo, oh, rising. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, uh, Tin Man plays that song, so... Uh, I uh, know that that is an anagram for uh, Jim Morrison, and uh, and I actually play that up a, and a little. And I have seen so. you uh, do it. Yeah, I think you have. Yes, yes, yeah, very yeah. nicely. So, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Jim, Jim smiles down on me when I do it. I think. So all or, right. So or let's, spits on you or something. I don't know. Or shows me his penis. One yeah. Other, but uh, <laughs> well, fuck his penis. Yeah. Sorry. All right. <laughs> let's get to, to it. Yeah. L. A. Woman. Hey, you're an L.A. woman. I am an L.A. woman. Right. Maybe he was writing it about you. Well, I was born in San Francisco. Maybe he was writing it about Pamela. Yeah. Corson. Corson, yeah. Yeah, yeah I yeah. think he was. Yeah. He wrote a lot of uh, songs about her. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and then Paris, City of Lights. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. So. Even though he has had yet to move there live there uh, yeah. although not long uh long afterwards he did that's right yeah now then the other song that was on this oh album i know that one too is, i know uh, where you're going riders on the storm <sighs> that's a great you know, song slower and it's got all the rain his brain it. was slower jazzier like and more too. melodic and yeah. generally thought to be more autobiographical but speaking of paul Rothschild, you mean you mean a, you mean a serial killer yeah Autobiographical. I, I have no idea, but that's mm. what they said. Like I, like I said, I don't listen to lyrics very much. But um, anyway, Paul Rothschild, their producer, didn't like the new material. He called writers on the storm cocktail music. Are those fighting words, Christian? Yeah. Cocktail music. I would music. say so. It's like, uh, to be honest with you, it's one of the greatest keyboard solos of all time. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't know what to say about that. Uh, cocktail music. No, that's and there's a great <laughs> story. It's a great story. It's dark and twisted. No, this is this is good shit. 
Yeah. And maybe yeah. he was getting tired of them. I don't know. He said they yeah. should produce it themselves. I think it was the last single, I think, uh, before uh, his passing. Love Her Madly. Was that the... I, I, but I think that was afterwards. Oh, okay. I think before his passing uh, that uh, this was the last one. So, um, but uh, yeah, let's, let's play a little, yeah, play of a little bit of that. We need rain. Riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. Into this house we're born. Like a dog without a bone and actor out alone, riders on the storm. Um, I don't know. It's just very moody. Yeah. It's like a. It's and it's very cinematic. Yeah. It works perfectly between uh, you know uh, Ray and uh, and Jim's uh, college education, huh? I guess so. Yeah. What do you mean their college education? Film students. Oh yeah, right, right. Cinematic. Oh yeah. Okay, I got it. Storytelling. Ah, uh, spacing out here. Like All right. The images are in your head. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so. So, um, now this is the beginning of the end. Yeah. Um. Or the end of the beginning. They no, agreed it is, to perform. It is the beginning of the end. <laughs> they right. Uh, they they agreed to perform live in Dallas and New Orleans, and. Jim was in good spirits, and they previewed Riders on the Storm, which we just heard, which the audience loved. So in Dallas, everything went really well. But in New Orleans, what this is what they call a tragedy. The writers called it the end. And they said that night, Ray saw Jim's spirit go. Ray said he lost all his energy midway through the set. He hung on the microphone and it just slipped away. You could see his spirit leave him and he was drained. Unquote. That the may doors. be a, a little revisionist history on Ray uh, Manzarek's part, uh, who was known to delve in some of that. Uh, but that was their last their public last show. appearance. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, quartet. of course, hindsight after what is going to occur a few months later, uh, you know, you look back and go, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. He just, he, he wasn't with it anymore, man. He just, you know, it was, it was no, no, no surprise that he died, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but um, right. I, I think, you know, we've been talking about this throughout this entire episode is that, you know, Jim was kind of a reluctant rock star. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, at first it's all exciting and new and, uh, you know, uh, and, and fun. Uh, and then, you know, you, you, you know, you get asked the same fucking questions over and over and over again. You know, uh, the expectations are, uh, you know, uh, greater. The pressure is greater. Uh, and, uh, you know, he has, is, is as a rebellious spirit to begin with. And now he's rebelling against it, self-medicating. Yeah. We've already established the the possibility of psychological issues uh you know five plus years of this uh, will wear on just about anybody yeah 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 it, does, it sounds like um sounds very draining to me especially with all the drinking going on he can't yeah. he's not healthy yet he was uh still you know working on his 
He had poetry, he had a film he was working on, music, the theater, and um, they were producing this last album, um, which he told everybody was a blues album. And the last song that we're going to play right now is um, Love Her Madly, which was on that album, uh, L.A. Woman, Mm -hmm. and would be released as their first single in exactly a year. And it was much more commercial sounding than the rest of them and got quite a good, you know, yeah, got them back reception. into the back into the game. They, yeah, yeah, they could have continued on, and as we know, they did continue on without Jim, uh, unsuccessfully and horribly so. Uh, there's nothing uh, that is worthy uh, to come out uh, with with them missing Jim uh, until you know retrospectively, uh, you know, the guys uh, getting together and and doing it as a Doors sort of tribute, uh, if you will, but. Uh, yeah, let's play uh, a little of their uh, their single Love Her Madly. got something um do you love her madly no you don't love her madly (laughs) do you love her madly? i don't have anything to say about love her madly so you don't love her madly no i don't love her madly oh well then who do you love madly i love my husband of course so you love him madly yes not her madly (laughs) yes so you would really just change one word and you'd be happy then i would sing this song oh that can be done you know yeah oh no, I don't think I'm going to cover any Doors songs. So Don't think so? No. Oh. I don't know. Okay. I suppose people are strange. Maybe. You could. Yeah. yeah. Well, let, let, get us so, out of here. What, yeah, ha- what happens next? A, there's a happy gonna, ending, right? Yeah, No, there's not. But there's, What? No, I'm so sorry. Oh, they it. moved to Paris. Pamela and How is Jim. that not a happy ending? Oh, it... It was happy. Well, I don't know. She she seemed to she wrote some revisionist history and said uh, that they were very happy there. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, he decided he could do everything he needed to do in Paris, and they went there, and the doors stayed behind and started working up some new material, thinking he was going to come back and do the lead vocals for it. But uh, by July first, nineteen seventy one, he had become terribly despondent and depressed. He had. Uh, you know, gotten some new drinking buddies, and um, but he was trying to quit drinking and trying to write, and his friends and Pamela took him out to dinner, and that there the story becomes very garbled. Um, there are different tellings about what happened next, but by Monday morning, July 5th, Jim was rumored to be dead, but he had been rumored to be dead many times before. Well, so, he, he'd been dead two days by then. Yeah. So, because he dies on July 3rd. Yes. So the Doors heard the rumor, and Bill Siddons, their manager, called Pamela, and she answered the phone and told Bill he better come right over to Paris, but didn't say anything else. And he left and arrived in Paris on July 6th. He was met at the flat by Pamela, 
the sealed coffin and a signed death certificate. Mm. And the official cause of death was listed as heart attack. And by July 8th, the coffin was lowered into the ground. So there were, you know, so then we had, we're left with all these questions. There's Mm. people who still believe he never died. Like he just escaped and like changed his identity. But the question is like, how did he die? Because nobody ever saw the body, but um, Pamela. I think and I he guess died the, like Whitney Houston died. Too in many, the too many opioids, and uh, slowly sinking under, under the water. Yeah, he just passes out in the bathtub, and yeah, and I mean, it, I mean, that's you know, Occam's razor. You know, the simplest explanation is usually yeah. the truth. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, you know, he and Pamela were both known drug users. Well, she was a heroin user. Yeah, he yeah. was not known to use heroin because he had a fear of needles, but. Well, there are other ways to uh, ingest that drug. Uh, And so, yeah, and which, uh, you know, in the bathtub is not a good idea. No. You know, so. Why do people do that? Like, why do they go in the bathtub? Because they just think it's, you know, it's uh, comfortable. It's all warm and and cozy in my bed. Well, yeah, but. yeah, so I'm sure drugs were involved. I doubt any foul play. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there is, you know, talk of uh, that Pamela had something to do. I don't believe that. No, um, I don't think so. I don't either. think anybody else sound. had it. I think it was just a question of, uh, you know, um, you know, we've seen enough of this, uh, especially in the last several years uh, recently that, you know, with, with, with much better accounting and reporting, uh, these days that it probably was, as I said, um, a, uh, uh, you know, an opioid use of some form, uh, barbiturates, what have you. And, uh, lots of alcohol, alcohol, obviously. And, uh, in a bathtub. It's not that hard to kill yourself accidentally. Because that is the one thing that Pamela stuck with is that she found him in the bathtub. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. so, uh, and, uh, you know, yeah, on, uh, July 3rd, 1971, uh, you know, he was the last of the, of the 27, you know, that, that, that crop, Club, yeah. you know, the Jimi Hendrix and Janice had died the year before, uh, in October of 70. And, uh, you know, less than a year later, now Jim was gone, uh, you know, Brian Jones in 69, uh, and, uh, all of that. So, and there you have it. It's the yeah. end of the end of the sixties, huh? Yeah. I thought this the book was interesting yeah. in that it, um, you know, like Jim. It's a classic it's rock not, and roll book. I mean, yeah. it's it's one of those it books that if you popular. really want to, if you, yeah, if you want to get in, dive into uh, to rock and roll history, and uh, it, it's a good one to do. Uh, it's not, you know, uh, obscure. It's not yeah. it's uh, easy to read. heavy. Yeah, it's easy to read. Well, and, and one that, thing so. I have to point out is one of the reasons it's easy to read and it was so popular is that there's a lot of dialogue in it that's got to be somewhat made up i mean it i well, would call it, it it's all call written it 10 of a, years 10 a years fictionalized later yeah, yeah. Uh, biography yeah 10 years later yeah, yeah. yeah so. and uh so i had a little problem with it. it's like you know you don't know he said that and then he yeah. said that and then he yeah. said that but yeah. it makes it more readable yeah. in that way and it's all you know from interviews and people's memories and stuff like that yeah. but i thought his life was interesting in the way that it, it's not that he was a normal person and then he got into stardom and that made him get into drugs and alcohol and ego stuff and he you know rose and rose and then he had a crash he was that was how he was that was his personality so one reviewer 
uh, of this book describes Jim as not the cliches of rise and fall, of corruption by wealth and fame, but of a sudden burning out of a volatile, spoiled, gifted, intelligent, artistic individual. Mm. And so he, he didn't have a sudden decline. He was kind of declining, it seems like, most of his life was kind of headed in this direction because he was born, I think, an addict. He was born an extremist and a, you know, somebody who always wanted to push the envelope. And when you have those two things together, you can't really live long. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, obviously I've thought a, a lot about this and it's just, you know, until you're about 30, you kind of think you're invincible, especially a male. Especially if you're a man. Especially a male with a with a an ego that is being stroked uh, constantly by hangers on and yeah. groupies and uh, and everybody else. And now you have this pressure uh, that is uh, you know put on you. Uh, I've thought about you know why 27, and it just seems that 27 is that age of you know you've been in this game for several years, you've seen it all, you've gone through the excitement and the the shiny newness of it, and now it's like it's a fucking job, and yeah. uh, you know y you just don't know how to handle uh, this sort of stuff, and you know as we've discussed, there's you know drug and alcohol everywhere, uh, which is you know well known in musical circles. And you also, uh, you know, aren't aren't quite fully, you know, um, formed. Yeah, you're not, your frontal you're, you're not, lobe yeah, is not, not really an adult yeah, just yet. You're definitely, you know, and and you still think you can do all these things and uh, and handle it, and uh, you know, and you're self medicating and all, you know, so. It's not surprising. And I, you know, and I think a lot of these guys, if they could have just got, you know, into their 30s, they probably right. would have been able to like, oh, a little bit. <laughs> I need to slow down a little bit. Right. I can't be uh, drinking that much and snorting that much and taking right. that much uh, yeah, anymore definitely. and things like that. Mm -hmm. I, but, um, you know, unfortunately, Jim you know, passes there and uh, his body sits in Père Lachaise Cemetery, which I was lucky enough to visit when I went to Paris and, uh, He's definitely one of those guys that uh, uh, will continue to come up whenever we talk about the rock and roll story. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. all right. Well, let's get out of here. Uh, what do you got planned for us next? You got any idea? I do. I'm uh, reading Etta James's autobiography. Oh, nice. It's an older book, obviously, yeah, because yeah. she's been bed dead for a while. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. I Somebody, oh, I know the Chicago Blues History a uh, Twitter handle suggested it to me. They did? On Twitter, yeah. Great. Yeah. Fantastic. So that was really cool. He was talking about Etta James's autobiography, and I went, she wrote an autobiography? Ooh. What? And he told me the name of it, and there there I am. I Excellent. It. Yeah. Look, I'm looking forward to that. All right. Well, let's get out of here, and uh, I am going to leave everybody with, I think, the only song that we can play at the end of this when the music's over. Ah, Perfect. When the music's over When the music's over here When the music's over Turn up the lights Turn up the lights Turn up the lights 
the Rock and Roll Librarian. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Co-host, Shelley Sorensen. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at The RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at R and R Archaeology.